sermon title is called uh, To Have and to Hold. While attending a marriage seminar on communication, Tom and his wife Peg, uh, names changed to protect the identity of the true couple, listened to their instructor declare, it is essential that husbands and wives know the things that are important to each other. And addressing the men, the instructor asked, can you describe your wife's favorite flower? Tom leaned over, touched his wife's arm gently and confidently whispered, Biro, self-raising, isn't it? <laughs> the rest of the story is not pleasant. In the beginning... God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And when no suitable helper could be found among the animal kingdom, woman was created out of this man and then returned to him that they might again become one flesh. This becoming one flesh forms the basis for a true definition of biblical marriage. Genesis 2 and 24 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This would appear to confirm that the special union formed by Adam and Eve in the garden, in a God-ordained act of joining together, is intended to set the precedent for all subsequent marriages. Be united or as in the authorized version, cleave, is a word that just means glue. It literally means stick together. Husbands and wives coming together will stick together. Become one flesh is easily understood in the physical sense. But marriage is never really going to be a success if only built on a physical relationship alone. George Arthur Buttrick says, at its deepest level, marriage is a personal, sexual, spiritual companionship ordained and instituted by God. As I understand it, within Christian marriage, the husband and wife relate with each other on at least four levels. Of course, physically, uh, but not just in a sexual union, but with affirming touches, holding hands, and as our couple um, earlier on said, being together, spending time together. Just being physically present, men being there. They relate emotionally. They laugh together, they cry together, they hurt together, they grieve together, they smile together. The relationship between husband and wife. They also relate, I believe, on an intellectual level. They discuss, they reason, they plan, they compare, and they communicate. And fourthly, a dimension that maybe non-Christian marriages, although not always so, because there are other faiths where this would equally be true, but they relate spiritually one another. They worship together. They experience God together. And they grow as disciples Surely as individuals, but together, and they can serve God together. So within Christian marriage, the husband and wife relate physically, emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. 
Now, not all so-called marriages meet the ideal criteria of God's intended standards. And there are many forms of marriage found even within the Bible, that, um, as well as those that exist in societies today, that would, by definition, not be based primarily on biblical standards. Let's look at some of the historical perspectives as found in the Old Testament particularly. Many forms of marriage have been identified by Bible scholars. There is the patriarchal type, where the father assumes the authority, the headship. Uh, Here, the authority of the father is assumed, and the descent of of, uh, further uh, relatives is reckoned from the father. See that again and again in the Old Testament and also in the New. The assumption of male authority has dominated the concept of marriage throughout history. And many people believe it actually reflects that concept of God as Father within the Old and the New Testaments. Another type of marriage is the matriarchal type, where the mother assumes the authority. Uh, Within history, this has appeared in two forms clearly identified. The first form uh, is called a bina marriage, and there's just too many jokes to go there with that one, uh, because many of us maybe have been, I wouldn't even say it. Here, the mother assumes the the role of authority over the children, and the husband settles in her home, but has no direct input in leading and guiding uh, the children. The second form is called a mota marriage, which uh, relies on the wife's headship, again, and authority. But here, the husband does not normally reside in her home, but only makes frequent visits to it. Uh, And some of you might think, well, that's actually a little bit like ours, because my man's hardly ever at home. Uh, it doesn't mean that he doesn't stay there. What this means is that, that the husband would, uh, would just not live there at all and he would only visit uh, infrequently or frequently. A third type is, of marriage is polygamy. Some people don't think that polygamy is marriage, but the word actually means many marriages. A man or a woman marries more than one spouse. It was a widespread practice in ancient Israel And it's a term that can be applied either to matriarchal or patriarchal marriages. Uh, Predominantly, it was uh, the man married more than one wife, but occasionally a wife would marry more than one husband. Clearly a departure from the first marriage where the man and the woman were to cleave only to each other. And by the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, at a time when religious practice in honor of Obeying God's word was very, very low ebb within um, the Old Covenant. He condemns the practice of faithlessness to the wife of one's youth. And so I want to contest that the, the monogamous relationship shared between Adam and Eve elsewhere is supported in the Old Testament as the ideal for the coexistence of men and women. One final type of marriage that we find in the Old Testament is called the Leverite marriage. It's where a brother marries his deceased brother's wife. He did responsibility towards his brother's widow and was expected to marry her. But as you go through the Old Testament and into the New, we can discover that marriage in the Bible was something more than simply an understanding or an agreement between the consenting man and woman. It involved the community. Um, Some years ago, I did a paper for the Baptist Union of Scotland on uh, whether or not we ought to view cohabitive relationships um, within the world and subsequently among Christians as being what the Bible describes as marriage. 
Um, I won't give you the whole of the paper here this morning, but my conclusion is that that's not the case. In the same way that I don't believe that actually marriage between man and woman in the Christian context is purely something that's done because the man and the woman agree with it. You want to have at least some kind of consensual uh, feeling from the parents, from the families, from the community, uh, within your churches, respect the elders and the pastor's views and whether it's suitable to marry, etc., etc., etc. Let's look at some of the, the biblical um, concepts of that. But first, let's look at some modern trends, some modern social trends. Once upon a time, it was mum and dad married with a couple of kids. When I was a child, it was uh, 2.4 children was the average for a family. My dad uh, kind of raised the stakes on that little bit. He had 10 kids. Um, so we kind of, you know, try to keep that, uh, that average up a little bit. The story today is very different. The latest annual statistical review of British society finds that a quarter of children now live with just one parent. We now have the lowest number of marriages since records began. We're coming pretty close to seeing that for every three marriages, there are two divorces. Over the last 20 years, the proportion of people living together but unmarried has doubled from 12% of the population to 24% of the population. A figure that I found um, very difficult to, to comprehend is that I, we discovered that there are actually 29% of all households have just one person living in them, predominantly middle-aged men, tend to live alone within our society. Part of the result of this uh, is that back in 1958, which is really a vintage year, uh, 60% of people thought most people were trustworthy. Today it's 29% and still going down. These are signs that the glue that holds our society together is weakening. So what does the Bible teach about the marriage relationship? In our society and in Western culture in general, we've moved away from that concept of the nuclear family through a variety of stages to what is now commonly called the blended family. When issues regarding civil partnerships and the placing of children with single or same-sex parents are high on the political and social agenda, what does the passage we read particularly have to teach us about marriage? Three points. First of all, under the authority of God, the pattern to me seems quite clear and straightforward. One, husbands lead. In the marriage relationship, the man, and just for the sake of clarity, the man is a male husband is to be respected in his role as a loving leader, the head of his household. Paul had much, much more to say to husbands in their role as the head of the family than he had for other members. In 1 Corinthians 7, the first three verses, Paul teaches that there is a physical purpose behind marriage. He says men and women will be physically, sexually attracted to one another, and rather than express that that need for, for sexual activity outside marriage, it is good that men and women find their own spouse in order that they can be satisfied within marriage. Since God had given them this natural desire, it is right that they express that within the context of marriage. And again, I, I just have to be clear on this. The Bible is very clear, so I have to say it, that, 
that the Bible teaches that sex outside marriage is sin, no matter how powerfully felt or lovingly expressed. But here in Ephesians 5 and 6, Paul demonstrates that there is also a spiritual purpose in marriage. As the submissive relationship experienced between husband and wife is a picture of the relationship that Christ has with his church. So let's consider the husband as a loving leader. Now, if today you're sitting beside a rather attractive middle-aged woman who grunts and disagrees a lot, um, and she's sitting there, it's my wife. (laughs) If if that description fits the person you're sitting beside, and, and they're still disapproving of what I'm saying, and she's not sitting there, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's, so pray for that man. But the husband is a loving leader. And that love is expressed and actually has a purpose of of fulfilling three very, very important issues and principles within the context of marriage. First of all, men see that it is a sacrificial love. The husband is to love his wife. And if we just left it there, we could determine and make up our own minds what would be appropriate for us in terms of expression of love, giving of love, demonstration of love towards our wives. But Paul doesn't stop saying, by saying, husbands, love your wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that kind of hits you right in the guts and goes, whoa! It's a sore one for most men. But that's what Paul says. Christ gave himself for the church. As I thought about this again, just, just how Jesus demonstrates his love for us, I was just kind of overwhelmed again with that reality, that realization dawning on me anew that there was nothing lacking in the efforts that Christ was willing to go to in order to win his bride. And that's how men are to love their wives, that the husbands are to love their wives like that. Many women today feel unloved. Because their husbands have never understood how to give themselves in the relationship. They model themselves on their father or their grandfather or the males in society that never actually knew what it was to communicate and express a sacrificial love. Love can be expressed in a variety of ways. Um, Let me just throw these up for you. We can discuss them somewhere else. Or maybe those that were at the marriage seminar yesterday discussed them there already. The five universally accepted languages are love, are words spoken. Deeds done, gifts given, time spent, and affirming touch. And Jesus did all of that for his church. He loved his church in all of that expressions of love. Now, all of us, whether we're male or female, um, we will have either a, a dominating way in which we either give love or like to receive love. For some of us, it is just that we like to say to the people that we love that we love them. Uh, Maybe we like to be told by the people who love us that they love us. Um, I'm an Orcadian male. That's a male who comes from Orkney. You should think that Orcadian is something funny. (laughs) We're not good at expressing love with words. We're not actually that good at doing it with time spent either. It's kind of more a deeds done or a gifts given concept. And so that I need to learn that that's why that's the way I like to express and to receive love. Other people don't and I need to learn how to show love to them. 
Within the context of marriage, it's the same for husbands and wives. The guy might like to love his wife in a way that doesn't actually do a whole lot for the wife. So sacrificially, he needs to learn that if she wants um, half a dozen texts a day just to say, hey dear, I really love you, then you've got to do that, guys. You've got to work at it. It's got to be a sacrificial love. Secondly, it's also a sanctifying love. Verses 26 through 27. The word made holy means to set apart or to sanctify. Now, when a couple get married, they are literally set apart for each other from within the community of all others. That's why, kind of in ye days of old, it used to be called holy matrimony. It's called getting married or the wedding today, rather sadly. But it is, it's holy matrimony. And, and again and again and again, the celebrants of marriage would say, that which God has joined together, let no man put asunder or separate. Marriage was seen as a holy, sanctifying thing that helped, particularly women within the community. The love of the husband for his wife is not only sacrificial and sanctifying, but is also Satisfying. Verses 28 through 30. Love between a Christian husband and a wife is a mutually satisfying experience. Since they are one flesh and each belongs to the other, whenever they love their spouse, they're actually loving themselves too. Guys, whenever you love your wife, it's a way of showing love for yourself. She's, she's not just something extra that's additional to you. You are one person. You are one flesh. On all these four levels. Physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Since they are one flesh, they belong to each other. Whenever they love their spouses, they love themselves too. That's certainly a case, a principle of whatever I do for you benefits us. And that principle applies to every area of the relationship. Physically, emotionally, intellectually and spiritually. Just in case you think I'm painting too glowing a picture here of what guys do or what they ought to do, can I just say quickly four things that the husband is not in this role as head over the godly family. He is not a dictator, or he ought not to be. His example of leadership in the Bible is that of Christ as the servant leader or the caring shepherd. This thing that, you know, I'm the man, I'm in charge, it's not biblical. It's not a Christ-like concept at all. Secondly, no surprise to most of the women here, the man is not superior. Well, you knew that anyway. Men and women are equal before God. I read in my Bible that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you want to start talking about equality and individual specific rights, that's where I would begin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a humble recognition of that truth is where all of us can begin to discover the purpose, the immense privilege and purpose for which we're created and the role in life to which we've been assigned. Thirdly, the husband is not an exclusive decision maker. Jeanette probably grunted at this point. Good communication, good communication ensures that the best decisions are finally reached however they might affect the entire family. And fourthly, men are not always right. 
Well, you definitely knew that. They're not always right. Men and women are wired differently. And, and Lone was saying that. Teach this in the schools. We don't think the same way. I, I just can't echo that enough. Men and women think and behave and respond differently to pretty much everything in life. You might not know this, women, but um, not because it's my experience, but it's because it's my education. Men don't function well when nagged. You notice a little disclosure at the beginning? They don't. If you want a guy to underperform, nag him. If you want him to not fulfill his purpose in life, nag him. If you want him to change, since God gave you him as the husband, do what Moses did with Pharaoh when Pharaoh wouldn't let the, the, the captive Egyptians out of, uh, the captive Hebrews rather, out of Egypt. He took the issue to God. And said, see this guy that's in charge of the country? He won't do what you've said he's to do. So God, you bring pressure on Pharaoh so that he conforms to your will and purpose and pattern. Woman, if your man isn't changing because you're nagging him, don't be at all surprised. He's wired not to respond to your nagging. But he is wired to respond to his creator who has assigned to him a role in life for which one day he will give an account. And if he's not performing the way that God intends him to, you do what Moses did and go to God and say, hey, see this guy you gave me, God? He's not doing the things you told him to do. And let God bring pressure on that man so he conforms to the image that his creator has for him within the, the role of headship and leadership to the family. Husbands function best in their roles when they're respected and when they're supported. Now, if it's true that husbands are to lovingly lead, then it's also true that wives are to lovingly lean. Wives lean. In the marriage relationship, the woman, again, for the purpose of clarity, who is female and a wife, is to be praised in her role as a joyfully submissive partner. Guys, you might not have realized this either, but if you criticize your wife in any form or fashion, she will resist that criticism. She will not respond to it positively. She's to be praised within the role that God has given her as your co-partner in leading your marriage and your family together. In Ephesians 5 and 21, Paul sets the context for this pattern of behavior within the Christian community when he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as husbands submit to their role of loving their wives, so wives are submit to their role of supporting and helping their husbands. And Paul gives us two reasons for this command. In verse 22, I know I've done this slightly the wrong way around here, but you can follow it in Scripture, can't you? In verse 22, it's because of the lordship of Christ. When a woman allows Christ to be lord of her life, then she offers no resistance to allowing her husband to lead, since he too is under the same lordship and submits to Jesus in all matters of life and faith. When both partners are submitted as Christians to Jesus, there can only be harmony. I don't think that's only a principle that applies to marriage I, I'm, I'm a fierce contender that this is actually a principle that applies right across the whole spectrum of the Christian community. I cannot accept, I cannot get my head around a church 
that comes together for a business meeting to determine the mind of Christ where there is division and disunity. I cannot find that in Scripture as being the will and purpose of God. And therefore, I cannot find in Scripture that husband Christian and, and a wife Christian can somehow always be at loggerheads and tensions. It's got nothing to do with the relationship that it experienced horizontally. It's actually got something to do with either one or both of their relationship vertically with the Lord of their lives. And they're not submitting to Jesus. Their marriage isn't submitted to Jesus. So therefore they find it very difficult to submit to one another. This is not just about wives submitting to husbands. It's about husbands submitting to wives and loving them and leading them. This is the main reason, of course, why Christians should only marry other Christians. Maybe you're a young person or maybe not so young a person and the, 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 the person that you're going out with, you're dating just now, is not a believer. As lovingly and gently as I can tell you, that's not God's will and purpose for your life just now. For those of you who are married and to a non-believer, uh, Scripture exhorts you to pray earnestly and fervently and diligently and to live humbly with that man or woman in order to try to win them over for Christ so that the union might be one in which you can communicate not just physically, intellectually, and emotionally with one another, but you can have a spiritual union together under the Lordship of Christ. The second reason that Paul says that that wives should submit to their husbands is because of the headship of the man. In recent days, there's been much confusion, even in the church, about what biblical headship looks like. Headship has got nothing whatsoever to do with superiority. And neither does it have anything to do with ability. Just because you can lead doesn't mean to say you should lead. It is directly linked to the natural order in creation, but it is equally reflected in the relationship of God within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal within the Trinity. And yet we see very clearly defined roles and purpose for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, though they're equal. Equality um, is also seen, although he is the firstborn from among the dead, Jesus is also head over everything to the church. Jesus is not just our pal, he's not just our friend, he's not just the guy who hangs around with us and gives us guidance in life, which is kind of tritely displayed in many testimonies today. He's the head, he's the ruler, he's the Lord, he's the one with all authority in heaven and earth on all matters relating to faith. And the church submits to his rule. Selwyn Hughes, the late Selwyn Hughes, used to teach that when husbands lead and wives lean, then the women actually benefit in three very positive and dynamic ways. The mutually submissive relationship provides, first of all, for the woman protection. Now, this might sound like a rather old-fashioned idea with the man being the protector. You know, that's guys why you only hold your wife by the left hand, so it keeps your pistol or your sword arm free. That idea of the protector in society is maybe just a bit antiquated and a bit old-fashioned. But I wonder, let's think about it carefully. I just asked the question here, is there a need in our rapidly changing society to return to some of these values? Are not many of our social ills the result of men failing in their roles as loving leaders? And is it not equally true that the notion that women don't need men, far from resulting in liberating women has caused greater loneliness and dissatisfaction. 
Maybe that ache in your heart. Maybe that void in your marriage. Because you don't feel protected. You feel like you've got to look after yourself. When God has given and ordained a guy to take on that role and responsibility. The second thing it gives women is poise. Poise is a beautiful word when applied to women. Poise is about self-confidence. It's about self-assurance. It's about dignity. Nowhere is there a better example of this when men and women discover the value and the significance of their respective roles within marriage, the relationship one another under the authority of God. It's great to see a woman with, with that sort of poise. And thirdly, it gives her power. When a godly woman exercises power, she's not concerned about competing with anyone, least of all men. Real power is about self-control. It's about using our gifts and our abilities for the benefit of others to influence them and to change their world. Much of the modern, or is that now postmodern, girl power movement is selfishly motivated to promoting the individual and what they can get out of it. The contrast of the Christian value is, of course, to serve others and their needs and not be self-seeking. Thirdly, in this passage, I learned that children are to learn. In the marriage relationship, the children, that is males and females, boys and girls, are to obey their male and female parents. Paul, Paul gives four reasons why children must obey their parents. The first thing he says is that they are in the Lord. Ephesians 6, the first half of verse 1. Remember back in Ephesians 5 and 21, Paul states that the main theme at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 is that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So men submit to their role in lovingly leading their wives and their family. Women, as the wives submit to their husband's headship and authority and their role of being a support to him and being a mother to any children that that marriage um, results in. And right in the middle of this, Paul addresses the children. And it, I hadn't seen this before until I came to this passage again this week, but you know, Paul could have said to the parents, oh, and by the way, see to it that your children obey you. But he actually addresses the children personally. I think it's important that the children are addressed personally, from the leaders in the church. And actually, it makes me think that in Ephesus, the children maybe didn't have, certainly when this letter was being read, they didn't have their own activity at their own children education level. They sat with their parents in the church. And I'm just that kind of old-fashioned guy that thinks that actually it's a good idea to bring your kids to church with you. Not just when there's a children's program going on, but bring them to church whenever you go to church. Make them part of the congregation. They won't understand everything that's being taught from the pulpit. Of course they won't. Actually, the truth is, which one of us does? Mostly. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but the kids will have a positive experience in the assembly of God's people. They'll look around and not just learn what's taught, but they'll learn from observation. I did a seminar a week past Saturday when I explained in terms of pastoral care that more is caught than is taught. If children see it happen, then they'll respond positively. If they look at us enjoying being in the presence of God, enjoying hearing the word of God, well, they're going to respond by saying, well, this must be a good thing. I didn't understand it, but my mom and dad are really into that stuff. This must be good. So Paul writes to the children and said, you must submit to your mums and dads in the Lord. 
Children obey their parents as a way of reverence for serving Christ. Secondly, he says they should obey because, well, obedience is just the right thing. Warren Wearsby, in his little commentary on on, uh, Ephesians, kind of paraphrases very tongue-in-cheek a modern translation or version of Ephesians 6.1 by saying, Parents, obey your children, for this will keep them happy and bring peace to the home. Because that's just completely contrary to the word of God and to the natural order of things in the universe. Parents brought children into the world. They're your responsibility. If you're the parent of a child, that little boy or girl, or that young man or woman, it's your responsibility. They're a God-given gift. So teach them by discipline and admonition to do what is right. Thirdly, Paul says to the children, you must obey your parents because it's actually a command. And he cites the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Disobedience to parents is actually, tell the kids this, it's rebellion against God. But in today's society, oh, let's understand why little Johnny's jumping up and down and pulling his hair out and ours. Sorry if you've got a kid called Johnny who behaves like that. I should have called him Rodney or something. Let's say to the kids, in a loving, disciplined way, God doesn't want you to behave like that. And finally, he says that obedience results in blessing. Because the fifth commandment actually says that. If you honor your father and mother, that it might go well with you and that you might live long in the land. Now, in recent days, we've seen that, that you know, long life is not necessarily the thing that we're to focus on in the guarantee for any Christian of whatever age. But the truth is that sin or disobedience in any form or fashion will lessen our experience of God. It will lessen the child's experience of God. Obedience under the authority of God to our godly parents will always result in us having a better experience, a larger, a greater, a more intense experience of our God. And finally, a word to fathers. Without careful instruction and control, children will develop according to their own willful, sinful nature. I am of the generation of people, just not long post-war, that were called teenagers. Um, I am one of the original teenagers. They didn't have teenagers before the war. Well, people were in their teens, but they didn't have this sort of classification for a subgroup in our society that don't actually know whether they're little adults or big kids. And, and the philosophy of the day when I was a child was when that child hits 12 or 13, let him be expressive. Let him find his own way in life. And as a result, I belong to the generation whereby millions and millions of people left to express themselves and find our own way in life have grown up to have no moral absolutes and no spiritual principles to guide us and to lead us. Paul says, give them their head when they're kids and you're as good as sacrificing them. Paul gives one negative command and three positive commands specifically directed to the head of the home. So guys, take note. 
you and I one day will stand before our Creator to give an account of how we led our houses. Do not exasperate your children. The opposite of exasperate is encourage. But he puts it in the negative. Don't discourage them. Help them. Help them develop in whatever way. You know, you know the kind of dad who thinks the kids are just there kind of like clockwork toys to wind up and let loose? And it's great fun, isn't it? It's like, I do that with other people's kids, but <laughs> longer for the grandchildren to arrive so I can do that and just hand them back. Norman, you're so privileged. Don't exasperate your children. Secondly, he says, nurture them. The verb translated in NIV, bring them up, is the same word used in Ephesians 5 and 29 for feeding our own bodies. In the same way that you would look after yourself, look after your children as an extension of who you are. In the context here, Paul means us to understand, I believe, the need to nurture young people intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. And thirdly, he says, discipline them. Within Charlotte Chapel here, we have a practice of dedicating children to the Lord. Just very recently, last week or the week before, I can't remember now, we, we had a, a child dedication service. The word used in Proverbs 22.6, to train a child in the way that he should go, that when he is old he might not depart from it, is actually the word dedicate. Train a child, dedicate a child in the way that he should go. Now, none of us can possibly imagine that all we need to do to discipline the child and to see them grow up as a spiritual being is to present him or her before the Lord on one occasion in one service, make a simple promise, have the minister pray over them, and then suddenly they're sorted for life. Actually, the promise is not actually going to affect the child at all positively unless the parents making the promise then leave the pulpit and actually go and do what they've promised. We're to guide them. Children may not always listen to parents as they grow older. But I believe that if parents prove themselves to be reliable and trustworthy guides in the developmental years of a child, the greater the likelihood will be that the child will wish to consult over issues they face in later years. It's some 20 years since I lost both my parents. It's longer than that. It's 22 years. You know, there are still some days when I wish I could pick up the phone to my old man and say, Dad, this is what I'm going through just now. Help me. I've never been here before. Help me. And the only reason that I love and respect him in that relationship because he was there leading and guiding and directing me as a child. Guys, listen to what the Word of God is telling us here. It's so vitally important. Now, in this sermon, we've not even attempted to address the issues of singleness, either as a matter of choice or because of death or divorce. The Bible has lots and lots to say on these subjects, but that has to remain a theme for some other occasion. Today is about raising our awareness of the biblical principles and commands regarding marriage as ordained by God. We want to celebrate Christian marriage. And where we failed or faltered, we want to respond in repentance and confession. And maybe for some of you here, it's to God. Or maybe to those that you've let down or you've hurt. And that could include spouses, children, family, or friends. I want to close this with some thoughts from Marion Stroud in a little book called The Gift of Marriage. 
She says, marriage is a dynamic process of discovery. It's a journey, not an arrival. It's as much about being the right person as it is about finding the right person. It's about starting to love over and over and over again. It's a life's work. It's an art. And she finishes by saying, like any creative process, it requires active thought and effort. We have to learn how to share on different levels. We need to practice talking from the heart and understanding attitudes as well as words. Giving generously and receiving graciously are talents that are available to anyone. But all these skills need to be developed if the marriage picture that we paint is anything approaching the masterpiece that God intended. Let us pray.